tonight. We begin our study of the book of Joshua. We will spend probably the rest of the semester going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, squeezing this book like a sponge, hopefully walking away with a bigger view of God. So let me set this up right now, the theme, the the bluff, the bottom line up front for us all. Joshua is really a part two. Joshua is really a, a sequel. A sequel to the Exodus. A sequel not just to the Exodus, but to the first five books of the Old Testament, to the, to the Pentateuch. They're the part one. They're the prequel. Joshua is the sequel where we see in the Exodus God focusing on redeeming His people out of Egyptian slavery. We see in Joshua the fulfillment of His promises. We see in the Exodus, God taking His people from slavery in part one, and then in part two in Joshua, God giving them land and God giving them rest. Some of you may need some rest right now. They needed rest after spending several hundred years in slavery, not to mention wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. When we think of Joshua, you might think of bloody battlefields. Or you might think of how Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. I sang that as a small child, and some of you did too by your reactions. But beyond the battlefields in this book, and there are battlefields and they are bloody, but beyond the battlefields in the book of Joshua, Joshua's really more interested in the land. That's a huge focus in this book. In fact, it is possession of the land, which is the goal of all of their military conflicts. Possession of the land, a land that had been promised to them for centuries. A land that had been promised to their father, Abraham, centuries earlier. The book of Joshua shows us the fulfillment of these long-standing promises. They've been waiting a really long time. Some of you guys get really impatient with God because you pray, and He hasn't answered your prayer. And you've been praying for a week or six months. These are promises that, that God gave to Abraham that the people have been waiting and and just yearning for, looking forward to fulfillment. And that's what we're going to see happen in this book. One of the major issues in this book is around the date. And typically I'd say, you know, Paul wrote 2 Timothy sometime between 64 and 67 A.D. Um, And I can be done like that. I'm probably going to spend at least the next 10 minutes talking about the date And so bear with me, okay? Bear with me. I'll try to make it as interesting as I possibly can. But I'll give you the the answer up front. So you have the answer so you don't get lost or or zone out. Answer up front. I'm going to date Joshua sometime between 1400 B.C. and 1000 A.D. And I realize that's a pretty significant gap. But that's when we're going to date Joshua 1400 to about 1000. I think the ESV Study Bible says 1400 to 1200. But we're going to go with 1400 to 1000. 
And some of the clues as far as when we date this story are found within the text itself. For example, in chapter 15, verse 63 of Joshua, it mentions that the people of Judah, that's one of the tribes of Israel, that they were living in Jerusalem alongside the Jebusites because they couldn't drive them out. But we know, fast forward to about 1000 BC, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6, 10, that David captured Jerusalem from the Jebusites, and presumably after this time, any Jebusite population really didn't live there. Therefore, 1000 BC is kind of that bookend right there, from when David would have driven them out, so we wouldn't date it any later than that. Furthermore, we look at chapter 16, verse 10 in the book of Joshua, and there's a mention of the Canaanites inhabiting Gezer among the Ephraimites, another tribe of Israel. So Canaanites, Ephraimites, living in this town at the same time. But we know from the text, as well as history, that there was an Egyptian pharaoh whose reign began in 978 BC, who apparently destroyed the Canaanites who were living among the Ephraimites and gave the town to Solomon as a dowry, as per 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, and 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 16. And that's where we put that bookend right there, that, that any date for this text wouldn't be at the very latest about 1,000 B.C. But then we have other references, like in chapter 6, verse 25, there's a reference to Rahab. You may remember her. She was a Proverbs 7 woman. She was a lady of the night. She was a harlot, in case you guys aren't tracking the first two references. But Rahab, in, in Joshua chapter 6, verse 25, it, it references that she's still alive to this day. Not only that, but in Joshua chapters 18 and 19, we understand that there's these survey descriptions that apparently were written at the very time by the one who completed the survey, namely Joshua himself. Therefore, I said at the beginning, the dates for this book are roughly 1,400 to 1,000 that much of this story was written by Joshua himself. Not all of it, but some of it was written by Joshua at the time that he lived, at the time that Rahab would have been alive as well, around 1400 BC, but that some of it had been subsequently completed after his death, no later than the time of David, around 1000 BC. I said this story is a sequel. A sequel. It's a part two. It's an act two. To the Exodus? Yeah. And so when it comes to dating this book, so much, so much weight on the dates is based upon when we date the Exodus. Now you might not know this unless you just recently took Old Testament survey, but the date of the Exodus, when... God rescued his people out of Egypt is one of the most debated issues in the Old Testament. One of them. And essentially there's two views of, there's two schools of thought. There is the early date and the late date. Now, I'll give you the bottom line up front. I like the early date and I'm going to argue for the next few minutes on why I think the early date is the right one and try to convince you to take my point of view. But the early date is 1446, very specific date, and the late view is some late date for the Exodus is sometime between 1290 and 1270. Now, remember, um, in the BC years, we're counting downwards, 
In case you don't know that, we don't go 2017, 2018, 2019. We're counting downwards. That's why 1446 is considered the early date, and 1290 to 1270 is the late date. But those are the two schools of thought. And the late date, one of the arguments for the late date, oh, there's a timeline right there. Excellent. One of the arguments for the late date is discovered within Palestine, within the land of Canaan, sometime between the middle and end of the 13th century, roughly 1200 BC, is widespread destruction throughout the region, which those in favor of the early date, excuse me, those in favor of the late date, rather, say, here's the, here's the reason why it's the late date. There's this widespread destruction that takes place around 1200 BC, which if you take the Late date of 1290 to 1270, the people spend 40 years in the wilderness, and then come the conquest in the book of Joshua. Therefore, the widespread destruction that we see is as a result of the people entering the land. Okay, how do you argue with archaeology? Well, there's an assumption that's made. But if you remember anything about the story of Joshua, you know in almost all the military engagements, almost all the military conflicts that the people waged, they left the infrastructure intact. That is, they weren't burning down cities and houses. In almost all the military engagements, with the exception of few in the book of Joshua, they left the infrastructure intact. They went out on the battlefield, they killed their enemies, and they literally pulled a U-Haul up and just moved into their houses. That's, that's what they did in the book of Joshua. Therefore, someone like me who subscribes to the early date would point out to those who make this argument of the widespread destruction around 1200 B.C. that, well, this is not a common practice. In fact, this probably lines up more with the story of the judges that takes place chronologically after this. And yet there's still other arguments for this late date, 1290 to 1270. And perhaps one of the, I thought, most impressive arguments, I remember this in seminary, in fact, I think Chad and I were talking about this back in like December. But there's a, a unique reference in Exodus chapter 111. In Exodus chapter 111, there's a reference to two Egyptian storehouse cities being built. Their names are Pithom and Ramses. Pithom and Ramses. The Israelites built these two Egyptian storehouse cities, obviously sometime while they were in slavery in Egypt. And so people who argue for the late date of the Exodus, 1290 to 1270, do so because most likely the assumption is, is Pithom and Ramses would have been named after the Pharaoh whose name they bore, namely Ramses II, whose reign did not begin until 1279 B.C. The 1446 date that Joe argued couldn't be. They couldn't have left Egypt then because Ramses II's reign didn't begin until 1279, and they obviously were responsible for building these two cities, Pithom and Ramses. That's the argument. When I saw that, I was like, sold. I'm taking the late date, 1290 to 1270. I thought that was such a convincing argument, but there's an assumption even in what I just said. And the assumption is, is that these cities, Pithom and Ramses, were named after Ramses II. But the text in Exodus 111 doesn't say they were named after Ramses II. It's a fair assumption that they would have been named after the pharaohs. They were kind of egotistical in and of themselves. But it's an assumption. In fact, the name Ramses was used well before the 13th century and could have been associated with someone else. 
In fact, the name Ramses comes from the word meaning Ra is born, a reference to the sun god Ra. And so we continue. Perhaps one of the greatest archaeological discoveries that took place in 1896 at Thebes is what's known as the Merneptah Stella. There it is right there. Really cool thing. Granite, stone. This was discovered 1896. It's currently on display at the Egyptian Museum in Cairo right now. This feels like almost like Indiana Jones right now a little bit. This Merneptah Stella is dated to 1207 B.C., and it bears the name of the Egyptian pharaoh Merneptah, who would have been Ramses II's son. He ruled after Ramses II. And in the stela, it, it's commemorated for his victorious campaign against Canaan, against Syria. But more to the point, it is the earliest historical mention of the nation of Israel on this stone tablet, dated 1207 B.C., the earliest historical mention of Israel as a nation, which Merneptah happens to say on this stella that he totally annihilated. Obviously, other historical evidence would say that Israel was clearly not totally annihilated. But the importance of the Merneptah stella cannot be overestimated. Like I said, this is him referencing the fact that Israel was an actual nation, an actual people, even though it's kind of braggadocious. This would have essentially been kind of like the Twitter of the day where the leader talks about how awesome he is. So the thinking is this. If the late date of the Exodus, 1290 to 1270, occurred, the people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and then sometime... Shortly before 1207 B.C., Merneptah engages, has some type of interaction with Israel. It seems unlikely that he would have considered them any more than just a third world nation. Understanding that they've risen to this point in which they would be considered, excuse me, more than a third world nation in 30 to 40 years, it seems highly unlikely. Which is why many people say the Merneptah Stella is one of the pieces of archaeological evidence that supports the early date of 1446. But then again, people come and say, from the late date of 1290 to 1270, this is the people who apparently miraculously walked across the Red Sea. So does 30 or 40 years really matter? Does 30 or 40, do they really, is 30 and 40 years enough to, to, for a nation to be considered a nation by the Pharaoh? Maybe, maybe not. And so, we're left, I feel like, with this split decision. And for me, what moves the needle, I think, is the overwhelming biblical evidence. And we see this in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. Two key passages, which for me, moves the needle to the early day, to 1446. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, we read that Solomon... If you're not good with math, you will really want to pay attention. We read that Solomon began building the temple in the four. 180th year, 480, after the Exodus, which was the fourth year of Solomon's reign, a reign, a reign that began. This year would have been 966. You count back 480 years, you come to 1446. Now, those in favor of the late date say the math's wrong. That's their argument. They say the numbers are off, or it just represented not necessarily 480 years, but some significant amount of time. Okay, maybe so. But then we come to Judges chapter 11, verse 26. 
And Jephthah, you might remember Jephthah, he's one of the judges, he made the really silly, irrational vow, going out to battle, God's already promised him victory, but it's kind of like this insurance policy, so he says, hey, whatever, if you give me this victory, God, whatever comes out of my house when I return, I'll sacrifice to you, and of course his daughter runs out. His daughter runs out. So Jephthah's having this conversation in Judges chapter 11. He's having a conversation with the Ammonite king, and the Ammonite king has been attacking the Transjordan region, and he's saying, listen, you need to step off, you need to stop attacking us, and the Ammonite king sends a response and says, I'll stop attacking you when you give us our land back that you took. In which Jephthah replies, you want us to give you the land back? Moses took that land back in Numbers chapter 21. We've held that land for over 300 years, and if you haven't been able to take it back in over 300 years, why should we willingly give you the land right now? That's his argument. It's a passing comment, but it's a really important one in regards to what we're talking about. The reference to 300 years, whether literal or whether a long period of time, really messes up the later date timeline. And this is how it messes up the timeline. We have Joshua, we have the story of the judges, after the judges we have the time of the kings, we have Saul, we have David, we have Solomon. We already know Solomon's reign was around 966, the fourth year of his reign, okay? If the late date of the Exodus occurred between 1290 and 1270, and you go 300 years from 1270 to 1170, to 1070 to 970, Jephthah in Judges chapter 11 verse 26 is speaking while Solomon is currently reigning, which, in my opinion, is impossible. Because Jephthah lived a long, long, long time, not only before Solomon, but before his father David. Therefore, my conclusion right now is that the Israelites left Egypt around 1446 BC. They wandered in the wilderness 40 years, and we date the beginning of the story of Joshua at 1400. The Israelites would have entered the land around 1400 BC. It would have been during the late Bronze Age. Now, for those of you still with me, why does it matter? Some of you are thinking, Joe better have a really good response right now because I just sat through this and I did not come for a history lesson. Okay. What's the relevancy? I'm going to argue that dates matter a lot. Dates don't matter. Dates matter a lot. If you don't think dates matter, just try missing your significant other's birthday. Okay? You think dates don't matter? That'll only happen one time. It's never happened to me, by the way, just so you know. I'm not in trouble, not speaking from... Sometimes I speak from past experiences. That's not what's happening right here. Dates matter! Okay? You think dates don't matter? Dates matter! Don't miss your significant other's birthday or Valentine's Day or whatever other days they think is important. That's important to you as well. Furthermore, second, relevancy. What's the point of all this? Dates allow for credibility in order to compare the events of our story with other events happening simultaneously. Where were you uh, two weeks ago, Saturday? Oh, I was at that game. Oh, I was at that game. Word section. Oh, I was sitting on the other side. Oh, what did you think of that halftime show? Two when we're able to compare dates, it establishes credibility. We're able to compare events of our story with other events happening simultaneously. Third, the date of the Exodus is significant, not just because it's the prequel, the part one to our story, 
but because it also affects the date of our story. It affects the date of our story. It does. If it didn't happen on this date, it's going to throw off all the numbers all the way going to the time of the kings. And things aren't going to line up, and it affects credibility. It affects the credibility of the story. And fourth, the credibility of our story is strengthened. And I would argue our faith is strengthened. When we see both archaeological and extra-biblical historical accounts when we see archaeological and historical accounts that give support to this story, that strengthens our faith. People say, oh, you guys, you just take everything by faith. Okay, you've sat here for 20 minutes. Um, like, we're talking historical, we're talking archaeological, like we're going deep and wide. For those people who like to say those things. It just blows my mind sometimes people say, oh, well, Jesus wasn't a real person. I'm like, really? Like, is that what they taught you at state college? Like, Jesus isn't a real person? No, I would argue that the credibility of our story is strengthened. Our faith is strengthened when we see archaeological as well as extra-biblical historical accounts that give support to this book and reminds us of the one who wrote it can be trusted. As we'll see throughout this story, God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises, and God can be trusted. And so we begin, verse 1, Joshua. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. A land that had been promised for centuries. Like they've waited a really, really long time. A promise that the entire Old Testament, the first five books, the Pentateuch, point to, the people have yearned for. That time had finally come. That time is happening right now. The book of Joshua begins as though it were a continuation of something written previously, which it is. I've said it's part two. It's, it's a sequel. But specifically, these first two verses come on the heels of Deuteronomy chapter 34. I'd like to read that in its entirety to set up what I'm about to say. It should be on the screen right behind me. Yeah. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negeb, and the plain that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. 
and the people of Israel. They wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. Moses handpicked Joshua. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt. To Pharaoh, to all his servants, and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Moses is dead. He's dead. Can you really easily read over those words and miss the emotion? The only leader they've ever known. The only leader their parents have has ever known. He's dead. You think there there might be some trepidatious feelings right about now? Maybe some nervousness? Some uneasiness? The only leader they've ever known, the only leader their parents have ever known, the leader who's been with them through thick and thin, that they've leaned on, he's dead. What now? Billy Graham died two weeks ago. R.C. Sproul died just a few months ago. Men who love the Lord. What now? Don't miss the feelings that these people would have felt. Don't miss their emotions. It's less than ideal. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? As one commentator, I think, so eloquently puts it, Yahweh's fidelity, Yahweh's faithfulness does not hinge on the achievements of men, however gifted they may be, nor does it evaporate in the face of funerals or rivers. There's a concern. I'm sure there's an uneasiness. We got Joshua. I mean, it's great that we've got Joshua. Yeah, Moses handpicked him, but he's not Moses, right? I mean, they're about to cross, they're about to step off the LZ, line of departure. I mean, they're about to cross the River Jordan and go to war. Yes, God's, God's promised them this land. It doesn't mean that it's going to happen without any casualties. They're, they're going to go to war. And if there was ever a time that they'd want their Patton, if there was ever a time that they'd want their Eisenhower, if there was ever a time they'd want their MacArthur, it'd be right now. Like, this is the time you want Moses. This is the time you want your starting quarterback. I got it. It worked out okay for the Eagles, but for most situations, you want the starting quarterback. 
Like when the metal meets the meat line, that's who you want. And they don't have them anymore. They don't have Moses. People say, what are we going to do? Where's the next Billy Graham? Where's the next R.C. Sproul? Is God going to bring us such a person, such a man, for times as these? Times that try men's souls? His faithfulness does not depend on the achievement of men, no matter how great or gifted they are. His faithfulness does not evaporate in the faces of funerals or rivers. Maybe some of you, maybe you've had a, a, a friendship, maybe it's a relationship, whether it's romantic or platonic, there's someone that you've leaned on that you've had in your life, and they're not in your life anymore, and it's like, what now? What am I doing now? I used to think that. I mean, when I was younger, my mom, she was, she was like my rock, and I would, I would think, I would worry sometimes, I'd be like, I don't think I'd be okay. Like, if my mom died, like, I need her now. I still, I still have got things to learn from my mom. Like, I need her now. Like, I remember praying, like, God, please don't take my mom away from me. Moses is gone. And they've got the backup. Okay? It's not that he's doesn't have credibility. Moses handpicked him. But it's not Moses. It's Joshua. Joshua, which, oh, by the way, if you didn't know, it's not his name, actually. His name is Hoshea. Hoshea. You read Numbers chapter 13.8. So let's talk about it. Who, do, who is this guy? Who's, who's this guy that they have? Well, Numbers 13.8 and Deuteronomy 32.44 tell us that it's not Joshua, the son of Nun. It's Hoshea, the son of Nun. I learned this. I didn't know that. His name was Joshua. His name's Hoshea. And it was actually Moses who gave him the name Joshua. In Numbers 13, 6, Moses himself gives him the name Joshua. Now, to be fair, the book of Joshua, it does not make any sort of point whatsoever to say anything about the meaning of his name. Moses thought it was significant. Because he singled it out for mention in Numbers chapter 13. And furthermore, what's also interesting, his name Hoshea, which in the generic term, it meant deliverance. When it was changed to Joshua, now changed from deliverance to Yahweh delivers. As one commentator notes, that God himself was Israel's deliverer is an important point made repeatedly in this book. And Joshua's new name is a not-so-subtle reminder of this. We got Joshua. He's not Moses. Nope. He's not ever going to be like Moses. I mean, I'm, we talk about how Israel might be feeling. Trepidation's a little uncertain, you know, because they're going to go to war. <laughs> they don't have Moses. They got Joshua. Imagine how Joshua must have felt. I mean, these are big shoes to fill. And, and as we read in Deuteronomy 34, is there anyone going to be like Moses? Nope. No one's going to be like Moses. He's one of a kind. He's the franchise player. That's it. 
Think about how Joshua felt. You think there's pressure on his shoulders right now? A little bit. God is, God's going to keep his promises. God's given us the land. Yes, I know that. doesn't mean that those feelings, those nerves, that pressure, doesn't mean that that's completely eradicated. So here they go. Here they go. Joshua, whose name now means Yahweh delivers. See, in those moments, I think when we find ourselves in the absence of a Billy Graham, when we find ourselves in the absence of an R.C. Sproul, when we find ourselves in the absence of maybe that person in our life, whether it was romantic or platonic, in a relationship, that, that person who was our rock, I think there's these feelings like, what am I going to do now? Or maybe like, man, I've got to step up. Like, I've got to be Superman. Let me be really clear. You don't have to step up and you don't have to be Superman. You don't. There is one Superman. And it wasn't Moses, and it wasn't Joshua, it wasn't Billy, it wasn't R.C. There is one Superman, and he's the one who lived the life we couldn't live, and he's the one who died the death we should have died, and he's the one who paid the price that we could not afford to pay. I think it's important to remember that, especially in those moments of uneasiness, when that challenge, when that obstacle is right there in front of you. I mean, they're going to war, right? They are crossing the Jordan. They're going to take the land. Oh, by the way, remember, people live in the land. And when you try to take land that belongs to other people, historically, they usually don't like it. They don't like it. And that's what's going to happen here. What a wonderful, not-so-subtle reminder Moses is not their deliverer. Joshua is not their deliverer. Billy Graham is not our deliverer. Yahweh saves. Yahweh delivers. That we might remember that in those moments in which we feel ever so slightly like the people of Israel. When we feel that the challenge ahead of us is too great. You feel, there's no way that I can... I can climb this mountain. You're right. You probably can't climb the mountain. You don't need to get to the point where you've self-inflated your ego to the point that you can. If that was the case, you don't need God. You don't need a Savior. It's the, the beautiful picture here. It's the beautiful picture throughout the Bible that God should choose this, this man Abraham and make him the father of many people. Why Abraham? He could have chose anybody think sometimes that about my own salvation. Like, why do I love God? Why do I love God and my father hates God? In those moments, I think it's so helpful to remember. In those moments where nerves are running, in those moments where it feels like, man, I, I, gotta, I gotta step up. I gotta be a superstar here. You know, that's, I remember saying with in the Eagles-Patriots game, I was thinking, it's going to require the backup quarterback, right? It's going to require the, the Joshua to play near perfect for them to have a chance to win. But the fact is, is Joshua doesn't have to play near perfect, and neither do you to have a chance at the challenges and the obstacles ahead of you. Why? Because Joshua is no more our deliverer than Moses 
as Joshua's name testifies, don't forget this. His name means Yahweh saves, Yahweh delivers, and he will because he's faithful. That's why we went over the entire introduction. Oh, that your faith might be strengthened. That the credibility of this story might be reinforced to remember who our God is. You don't have a tiny God. You don't have a small, puny God. You have a monstrous God who spoke the world into existence, who releases the heavenly storehouses of snow when he determines to. Whether it's tonight at midnight or not at all, he calls the shots. He makes it happen. And we can trust him, and he is faithful. And that's good news for Joshua, who's trying to fill these monster issues. That's good news for Israel, who's just lost the only leader they've ever known on the eve that they cross the River Jordan, enter the land of Canaan, and engage in military conflict. So, there's one thing we need to do. We need to believe and we need to obey. That's what we need to do. We need to believe these things and we need to obey the one who spoke them. And sometimes that's hard. And maybe you're sitting here saying that's easier said than done. You're absolutely right. I can't make you believe any more than I can make you change your taste buds. But, oh, by the way, he can so as the band comes, I want to pray for us right now. I want to pray for us, for those who've maybe heard this story or a similar version of it before, but the struggle to believe and the struggle to obey are still real. They are. So God... We join with St. Augustine as he would pray so many centuries ago. Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Command what you will and give what you command. Enable us to do the things that you've called us to do, not because we're awesome, but because you are. Because as Joshua's name declares, Yahweh delivers And Yahweh saves. And we don't have to play the flawless game when everything's on the line. We don't have to be Superman because there is one Superman and it's not us, it's you. Lord, help us in those moments of uncertainty. In those moments when our faith may be rattled. In those moments in which we've got to cross the River Jordan and there is a monster on the other side, I pray that you would help us to experience our theology, not just talk about words, but to be wowed by those words. Joshua, Yahweh delivers, Yahweh saves. You, Lord, save and deliver us. Help us. Help us, God. May those words be the bedrock of our faith throughout today, throughout this week, throughout our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.